are here today. We're going to continue on, obviously, in Matthew. We've come to pretty much the end of, there's, there's one more sermon left, but I get to close out kind of the Sermon on the Mount with Jesus's words. And then there's kind of a few closing statements from Matthew that Gunnar's going to look at next week. Um, and so we're going to start with Matthew chapter 7, and we're going to go th- all the way through verse 27 today. The Bible says, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house. Yet it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand The rain fell and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Lord, as we read your word this morning, as we look at what your message is to us as you finish up the Sermon on the Mount, Father, may our hearts and our minds be attuned to what your Spirit would speak to us uh, through these words this morning, and may you get all the honor and the glory in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so what's going on here? This is, uh, the rest of the Sermon on the Mount has kind of had, Jesus has been systematically really, as Gunnar mentioned in the last couple of sermons, he's been kind of, he's been pretty much destroying the religious leader's view of the law. And so as the religious leaders, the Pharisees have come along and taught the people that this is the way you keep the law. You, you, you can be perfect and you can keep the law. And, it's the, and the way they've done it is by twisting the law to fit their actions. And so Jesus comes along and says, no, you can't keep the law. You can't be good enough because while you say don't murder you that he takes it further and says, but you don't understand if you hate someone in your heart, you've already committed murder. He says, but you say, I can keep the law. I haven't committed adultery. And he says, but the problem is if you've looked at a woman with lust after you've committed adultery. And so the whole way through the Sermon on the Mount, he's been talking about, he's, he's, he's been He's been pointing out what the real message and the meaning behind the law is against what the religious leaders of their time, the Pharisees and others, were teaching the people. Now he comes to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and it's interesting here, he adds no new commandments at all. He doesn't bring up one of the other commandments, he doesn't add to it, he's not instructing us on anything. But what he is doing is he's warning against disobedience. Because there is an action involved, it's just not the actions that the Pharisees thought they were. 
And it's one of obedience to Christ's command. And Christ uses three illustrations to make it clear that there's really only two categories of people in the world. On the one hand, you have the category of people that, 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 that is, is um, those who have the hope of eternal life with God and those who do not have the hope of eternal life with God. And in this case, he's going to show us that many times some of those who think they have the hope of eternal life with God are not in the same category with those that truly do. And, and it's interesting here that there is no third option. If you can come away from this sermon today knowing one thing, it's that there is no other option in life. You either accept who Jesus Christ is in a relate, for a relationship with God for all of eternity and have the hope of heaven, or you do not. There's no other way. You can't be good enough to earn it. You can't do enough good things. You can't go to church enough. You can't do anything else. You can either accept by faith Jesus Christ or you can reject him. And that's the only two paths. It's interesting that he, I think he specifically still has in mind here the focus of the entire sermon in the legalistic self-righteous religious leaders. Keep in mind that what they were teaching was that, that you can be capable of reaching God through your own actions, and the way they did this is by reinterpreting the law. So how's he start here? He starts with the first illustration. We're going to kind of break this down by the three illustrations. The first one is the road. It's a short, simple one. It says, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Now, what's he saying here? Keep in mind, I, I've heard this sermon, I've heard sermons on the Sermon on the Mount in this section that I think really missed the point. Because the Sermon on the Mount, me and Gunnar have discussed this several times, but really, it'd be neat if we had like eight hours to come in here and just preach through the entire Sermon on the Mount. I know you guys would probably get a little tired of that, but um, it, it truly is meant to be looked at as one complete message that Jesus, I believe, preached. And so when we try to start tearing it down into little pieces, it doesn't work. And so he's got in mind all the stuff that came before this, where he's addressing those religious leaders. And he says, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. What's he talking about? He's talking about the way that he's been talking about this whole time, the way of the Pharisees. What's their way? It's legalism. It's redefining the law so that you can keep it, so you can fit it in. And here's the interesting part. I, I, was, I was fascinated when I started reading this and really thinking it through, and I was like, man, this ties in so well with what Josh spoke on last week because he pointed out to us the dangers of legalism, that you start to trust yourself and that salvation is totally by faith without works through grace. And the fact is, legalism is really easy. If I can come to the scripture and I can twist it enough to say, you know what, I can be that good. If I read this a certain way and I start twisting this verse in the right way, well, I, I meet that criteria. And that's what Jesus has just spent the entire Sermon on the Mount dealing with, saying, no, you can't meet that criteria. Because that criteria is a lot different than what you think it is. And so legalism 
is, is actually the easier way. We can put on the right front. I can follow. I'm good at rules. I like rules. I, my Marine Corps background, my upbringing in a fundamentalist church, makes it really easy to follow rules. If you give me a set of rules, I might bucket some of them. But for the most part, if I, if I can buy into those a little bit, I'll sit there and I'll follow them down the list. One, two, three. I meet that criteria. I do that. I do that. I do that. That's pretty easy. What's, what, what's harder? He says, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. You see, true inner righteousness is much more difficult. In fact, here's, here's the, what I believe the whole Sermon on the Mount points to. True inner righteousness is absolutely impossible. Apart from one, one factor that's huge. Our faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is trying to point out the fact that you cannot keep the law. You cannot twist it around. You cannot keep it. All those rules you think you're following that are going to get you into heaven, that are going to be good enough to give you that relationship with God. Yeah, they're easy to follow and there's a whole lot of people doing them. There's a whole lot of religious people in the world. There's a whole lot of people going to, go in, 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 you know, it's easy to, to think in our country, oh, well, everybody's going to church. I can guarantee you there's some people at church this morning that are there because they think that that's what's expected and that would do the religious thing to get them into heaven. There's a whole lot of people it, it, that went to Hindu shrines this week in India, that went to Shinto shrines and Buddhist shrines in Japan, that went to Buddhist shrines in China, that went to um, their, their, their cathedral in, in wherever thinking that that is what's going to get them into heaven. And that's an easy way. But Jesus comes along and says, all those things you think you're doing will never get you there. And so he says it's much harder, and the way is narrow that leads to life, because we can't have true righteousness in and of ourselves. That's what he spent it doing. It's interesting to me that narrow and broad can carry the, same, the sense of difficulty as well. That the broad way, the way that leads to destruction can also carry the connotation of meaning the easy way. That it, it, it doesn't have potholes in the way. You know, um, it's been interesting to me since, the, um, since the, the, uh, the Supreme Court ruling on gay marriage. I, I have as a chaplain, you can imagine, I've got some friends that are pretty far to the left of me theologically who also are pastors um, who I definitely wouldn't agree with. And it's kind of interesting to me that their denominations um, are really easy to jump on board and say, and twist script. And to me, it's the same thing the Pharisees were doing and saying, well, you know, it, it's, you know, well, the, this is what our culture says. Well, I know this is what the Bible seems to say, but maybe if I can just reinterpret it in this way, if I can just get rid of this part of it, and it's really only a few verses anyway, so let's just kind of cut this out of it. We don't need to trust this. And all of a sudden, you can justify just about anything. Well, that's easy, because now you can get along with culture. And now it's really easy to go in that direction. It's a lot harder to say, you know what? The Bible says this, and in order to be in line with Scripture, I have to hold this. That's a harder position to take. So narrow and broad can carry the sense of difficulty as well. And it says that the narrow gate... The, 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 the small gate is the one that we should be looking for. That's the one of true righteousness. And it's not found in ourselves. 
It's only found through Jesus Christ. He goes on and he carries the illustration further. And he goes into an illustration about a tree. It's interesting here, he says, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Now, this is an interesting illustration here. In fact, some commentaries like to pull it apart and call it two separate illustrations, but I don't really think that's what it is. He starts off with the thing about the false prophets that come to you, and when he says, they're as sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. What's he saying there? He's saying that good people can come in and they can look morally right. They can do good things. They can look the part of a believer. And so they can come to church on Sundays. They can, they can say the right words. They can sing the right words. They can look the part. But inwardly, they're not part of us. They're not, they're not going the same direction. And remember who he's got in mind here, who he's talking about, the religious people of the day. That's the ones he's got in mind. The people who look the most perfect, who say the most perfect things, who can talk really grandiose things about the scripture and turn them into something that fits their lifestyle and fits their desires and fits their makeup. And so he says, beware of these false prophets because they come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. It's interesting that he uses that analogy to me because a wolf... While they looked good and they looked perfect, what are they really doing? They're looking to destroy you. A wolf does not go in among sheaves to sheep, sheaves, sheep, so he can go and lick on the sheep and tell them how nice they are and how much he loves them. No, the wolf goes into the sheep so he can destroy those sheep, so he can find something to eat. So if a person comes in, you know, unfortunately, I think there's even some deluded people who try to pull people in their direction. Well, you know, I don't like this music. Maybe if we started using a more godly form of music. Maybe if we started using, and maybe if, if we would just get on board with, the latest, with, with a more godly way of doing things, then, and all those little ways of seeing things and trying to pull people, and, you th- and they think, I think some of them really think they're doing the right thing. But in reality, that legalism is dragging people away from the truth of the grace that is found in Jesus Christ. And he said, he, it's interesting to me though here that what does he say? Because I do think he's talking here about legalism, but then he comes back and he says, guess what? You can judge a book by its cover. You can tell whether a person is showing the fruit of being a true Christian or not. Now, before we go into this though, I want you to keep in mind the way chapter 7 started. When Gunnar preached on this uh, three weeks ago, when we started chapter 7, chapter 7 starts off with a clear admonition that says, judge not so that you will not be judged. And, 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 and Gunnar explained, this is not saying don't judge. And I think that's what we're seeing here. It's not saying we should never show, show uh, we, would, we should never use our judgment 
in, in, in understanding people. But what it is saying is that that critical spirit that would look at another person and criticize them and nitpick and do all of that other stuff, and that we need to examine ourselves and come into those situations with a spirit of humility, a spirit of understanding our own faults, of seeing the logs in our own eyes before we look at the little tiny speck in our brother's or sister's eyes. And so that all kind of leads in before this. So he's already set the standard that, okay, he's going to tell us to judge here, but just understand how this judgment really comes about. Um, This section is about judging, but we have to approach it with the non-critical spirit of humility. Um, So what is he really talking about here? I think that, um, that... that Dallas Willard, in a book I read, uh, really captured the significance of the illustration here. He says, The fruit of the good tree is obedience, which comes only from the kind of person that we have come to be. That's the inside of the tree in his fellowship. The wolf in sheep's clothing is the one who tries to fake discipleship by outward deeds. But then inward realities overwhelm that person, and that's when their true colors come out. And so what he's saying here is that only the deeds that matter are the ones that are coming from the inside. You can only keep up appearances for so long. Jesus was able to point out the flaws in the Pharisees' arguments because there were probably enough people that had looked at him and, and, and when Jesus just pointed them out, they were probably like, wow, he's right. That person is just, a, just doing it on the outside. There's not an inward relationship. There's nothing inside of them. Um, the, uh, it, you, there is kind of a dichotomy here because if you think back to the whole of the Sermon on the Mount, what has kind of been Jesus' theme? That the inward part of a person is more important than the outward actions of a person. I mean, that's why he focused on don't commit adultery, not just don't commit adultery, don't lust. Nobody can see you lust. Okay, maybe you can see a little bit, but they can't see you lust. Nobody can see you hate your brother. may come out in some scornful looks, but mostly it's going to come out in your head. So Jesus has focused this whole time on what's inside of you, who you are as a person. But now he's saying what you are on the inside will come out. Um, and, and, and people will be able to see. So the question becomes, what actions are you going to look at? What is the fruit that we're supposed to be looking at? Um, to the Pharisees, the actions were outward religious behavior. They, we already talked about some of those things. Prayer, they would, you know, let's, let's make sure everybody knows we're praying. So we can do it loudly and we can put on the right stuff. Let's make sure everyone knows we're fasting. So we tell everybody how, how hard it is on us and we make it look like we're, we're dying of, thir- of thirst and hunger. So we make ourselves look this way. I mean, we d- didn't Jesus discuss all these things? And that's exactly what was happening. But to Christ, the behavior that he focuses on is this. It's a humble acknowledgement of our inability to keep the law that drives us to rely on him for our righteousness. What does that look like when that happens? It's in Galatians 5, 22 through 23. This is what happens. We get what we call the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, 
self-control. Against such, there is no law. That's not the same thing as religious actions. That's not the same thing as doing enough good for other people. And Jesus never says, don't do those good things. But all of those things should flow from a heart that has been changed by the Holy Spirit and begins to reflect these character traits, this fruit of the Spirit found in Galatians 5. And so how do we judge another person? And and keep in mind here, I don't think Jesus is telling us to go out and start looking at other church members and saying, I don't think you're a real Christian, let's kick you out of the church. That's not what he's saying at all. I think what he's saying is, we should have our eyes open to what truly makes a believer. And it's not coming to church and saying the right things. It's literally having a heart that is changed by Jesus Christ so that the fruit of the Spirit comes forth in that person. And therefore, just the opposite of the way the Pharisees looked at people and used the law to hammer them over the head and say, you're a horrible person because you don't do what I said to do. Jesus comes along and says, if you're really a Christian... Your love will overflow towards another person. The last thing you'll want to do is hit them over the head with it. You'll want to pull them along beside you and say, can I help you through this? Can I love you? Can I love you no matter how you look or how you act or what your sin is? Because that's what Jesus Christ commands us to do. That's how the the fruit of the Spirit manifests itself in our lives. You know, I have a, um, as I was thinking about this fruit thing, I have a, uh, a passion fruit vine at home. And yesterday, I was working around in the yard a little bit while we were smoking some delicious ribs. Um, and I just had to throw that in there. But uh, so we have this passion fruit vine and it's growing. We planted it literally, I think it's only been planted maybe at the beginning of the season. But it has just taken over. It was like one little strand. And now it is literally over the entire side of my house and up on the terrace we built for it. And then it actually goes, it started going into my neighbor's yard. It was so big and I, I didn't really want him to get annoyed with it. So yesterday I had to cut this thing back. It is beautiful. It is growing like crazy. It is a beautiful green color. Um, it gets enough water. We don't, uh, just, just from, you know, doing whatever we do, and especially with the rain lately, it gets the most amazing, beautiful flowers on it. They are gorgeous flowers. The bees love them. Guess what that vine doesn't do for me? It doesn't make any passion fruits. I don't get it. It's the most prettiest vine you'll ever see. It's beautiful. It does what a vine should do if, I, if you want a vine. It grows. It looks beautiful. It makes beautiful flowers. But the one thing that you want a passion fruit vine to do, it doesn't do. It doesn't make passion fruit. I don't know why. But unfortunately, this is what Jesus is talking about here. You can have the best looking person. You can have them dressed up in the finest clothes, saying the best words in the most wonderful way. But if they don't know Jesus Christ, they truly cannot produce. They're not producing what the fruit of the Spirit is requiring them to do. I have some very good, some very, some good friends of mine, very strong religious people This week I was reading one of their Facebook pages and he wrote the most awesome, honestly, it was one of the best things I've ever seen on loving his family and doing all this. But without Jesus Christ, he doesn't know Christ and he doesn't accept them. And and I know that without Jesus Christ, they're great words and he is truly a good person, but he does not know what it means to produce good fruit. So it's all actions. And yes, they're good actions, 
but they're not done through a heart that comes from the fruit of the Spirit. He goes on and he says in verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. He, he continues his discussion here of the sheep's, uh, the wolves in sheep's clothing um, and, and the ones who are not truly producing fruit, that it's all outward action, by, by recognizing the fact that just because you make a verbal affirmation of faith doesn't mean you truly know God. It doesn't know, it doesn't mean that there's really, a, that there's always a life of obedience that should back up our verbal affirmation of Jesus Christ. Now, does that mean that our lives are going to be perfect? If there's one thing you take away from this, please know that Jesus has never said that. In fact, he said you can't be perfect. But with a humble reliance on the Holy Spirit, we should know that God is working in us to show us our imperfection so that we don't come out like the Pharisees saying, oh, I'm pretty good. I fulfilled that law. I did that well. I did this pretty good. In fact, with the Holy Spirit working inside of us, it becomes just the opposite. It becomes, Lord, you show me just how bad I really am. And then you fall at your face in humility and love for him and for what he did for you to save you from your sins. A verbal affirmation of faith is not what saves us. But those whose life of obedience backs up those claims. It's interesting to me that James ties right into this. James was a book that Martin Luther once said famously, it's a right spurious book. He didn't even believe that it should be in the Bible because he said, well, it's talking. Martin Luther's thing was, of course, during the Protestant Reformation where he said that, that it was sola, sola fide, sola gratia, only by grace, only by faith. And he, came, and, 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 and he's very, he was absolutely right. But James isn't against faith. James's message throughout the entire book of James is summed up in verses 18 through 20 of James chapter 2. And it says this, But someone may well say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Just because you say you believe in Jesus, if your life doesn't back that up, the Bible never gives you assurance of your salvation. I used to, I used to kind of try to give, tell people, and when they come to me struggling with their salvation, you know, it used to be one of my first questions was, well, has there been a time in your life where you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you said the sinner's prayer, and, 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 and you asked Jesus to forgive you of your sins and come into your life? I don't do that anymore. Because when I was a kid, I said a prayer a ton of times. And I don't think it meant a hill of beans. But when I was 12 and I came to fully understand that Jesus Christ died for my sins in my place because I, am, I could not find my own forgiveness and truly place my life completely under his control and ask him to be the Lord and Savior of my life. And it didn't make me perfect but it did start me on a path of following Jesus with my life. 
That's what salvation truly is. When you can look at your life, and the fact is, when you're a Christian, you're probably going to be more aware of your sin. Because the unbeliever isn't aware of their sin. It doesn't matter to them. Because God's not working in their life to say, hey, you messed up again. You need my grace to cover this sin because you're not perfect. The only, the only assurance of our salvation comes from seeing our faith worked out through our life. And how does that look? It looks like the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace on all those other ones. When we see that working out in our life, believe me, Satan's not putting that there. He's, Satan is not tempting you to be a more loving person. He's not tempting you to be a more loving spouse. He's not tempting you to be a, a, a more loving parent. He's not tempting you to, to go and treat somebody well who treated you miserably. That's from God. That's from His Holy Spirit working out through you to put the fruit of the Spirit in your life. And so he says, it's, it's not the person who comes and says, Lord, look at what I did for you. It's interesting that James also brings up demons, or, or, or at least uh, he brings up demons in this passage in James 2, because I think it ties in here with the fact that what happens in verse 22, look at this. It says, Lord, Lord, we didn't just say we were one of your followers. They said, we did we not prophesy in your name in your name we cast out demons in your name perform many miracles notice jesus doesn't try to say you didn't do that in fact it's i i find it interesting that that he never says no you didn't do that what he says was i never knew you and james here brings up the fact that the demons also believe and shudder if you're trusting in your experience, religious experience, that that is what you're placing your trust in for a relationship with God, that religious experience cannot be trusted. There's a whole lot of churches in the world today that place a lot of focus on your experience when you come. And most of them would tell you they're spirit-filled and they have the Holy Spirit and that the way the Holy Spirit will always manifest itself is if you haven't spoken in tongues, if you haven't seen a miracle, if you haven't healed someone, if you haven't had some miraculous thing done, that, then you can't believe that God's working in your life. Satan has always been able to counterfeit God's true work. And if he can convince someone that they're saved because they feel something miraculous or they experience something amazing and keep them from actually placing their faith in Jesus Christ, then he's won a victory. He doesn't care if it's got Baptist in the name. If he can use that to keep people from seeing Jesus, he will. In Revelation chapter 13, verses 11 through 14, at the end of time, as it's talking about the um, Antichrist and, um, and, and, his, and the beast coming up, it says in Revelation 13, 11 through 14, it says, Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. He exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence, and he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast, that's the Antichrist, whose fatal wound was healed. He performs great signs 
so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given to him to perform in the presence of the beast. Satan can counterfeit a miracle. Satan can counterfeit powerful things. That's one reason why I believe the Bible teaches it's dangerous to mess around with the occult and with spiritualism and things like that. Because the Bible says Satan is the prince of the power of the air. He has power. It's power that's under God's control, but he has power. Never trust your feelings, your emotions, just an experience for your salvation. If that is what you have to have in order to feel saved, you're trusting the wrong thing. It's about what is happening inside of you and about the fruit that God is producing in your life. And notice all of those fruits in Galatians chapter 5. Not one of them has anything to do with an amazing, miraculous event that happens because you touch someone. They all have to do with what the Holy Spirit is doing inside of you to produce love, joy, peace, patience, all of these other things. That's what the real work of God is in the world. The external spectacular demonstrations of faith prove nothing. Neither do titles. Notice they said, Lord, Lord, you can say the right thing. You can say, I believe in you as Lord, but unless your life is living it out and you're following him as Lord, those words don't mean anything. It is what is in the heart that counts. It's interesting that he ends on this word lawlessness. He says, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Who? More than anyone else in, their, in, the, in the people he's speaking to, who in their world more than anyone else thought they were keeping the law? The religious leaders, the Pharisees, the people who he has just spent the entire Sermon on the Mount kind of tearing down this religious foundation they've built. He comes along and says, those people who they think they're following me, they think that they're going to reach heaven one day and say, Lord, look at all that I've done in your name. He says, in reality, they're practicing lawlessness. The, most, the people who think they're the most law-abiding in the end are the most lawless. What a shame if we one day stand before God and we think we're the most religious and God looks at us and says, depart from me. You thought you were doing the right thing, but in reality, you were never keeping the law. Because the fact is we can't. The fact is the only righteousness we have is in Jesus Christ. And without him, we can do nothing. Another thing that Jesus says in this passage, it's so full of truth in here. Verses 19 and 23, Jesus doesn't shy away at all from the fact that there is judgment for those who are not truly righteous. You may have fooled everyone else, but when you die, there is no fooling our Creator. Another area where people want to try to twist the Scripture or say, well, maybe, maybe this isn't really what Jesus was saying. I read another article this week that, that, that basically said um, you, you know, that, that Christianity made, made the concept of hell up as just a way to scare people into staying in church. Historically, that, that just isn't true. 
But you cannot get around the fact that in Scripture, over and over, what happens after death is seen as judgment for our sin if we didn't know Jesus Christ. And in verse 19, where he says right there, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And in 23, he says, I never knew you depart from me. He captures the two aspects that hell is always described with. It's always described in terms of fire and separation from God. And if there's one thing that should motivate us to tell our friends and and our neighbors and our family about Jesus Christ, it should be that one day we will all stand before God. Hebrews 9, 27 through 28 says this, Inasmuch as it it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins for many, will appear a second time. For salvation without reference to sin for those who eagerly await him. And then in Matthew 25, it talks about that coming and it says, But when the Son of Man comes in his glory, Matthew 25, 31, but when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another. As the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, he will put the sheep on his right and he will put the goats on his left. The scripture clearly tells us that at some point in time, whether we live long enough to die here on earth before Christ comes back, or whether we are here when Jesus Christ returns for his people, at some point, every one of us will be judged and we will stand before God. And the only answer we can give is not, I've been good enough. The only answer we can give is that we're relying on Christ's righteousness that he was the only one who lived a perfect life. And when he died on the cross, he died as a perfect sacrifice for our sin. And that our faith in that sacrifice, in what he did on the cross, puts us in a right standing with God for all of eternity. John Calvin, in his uh, Institutes, I was uh, just listening, I started reading them this week, and he says in there, he says, hypocrites would fain by means of torturous windings make a, slow, make a show of being near to God at the very time they're fleeing from him. For while the whole life, their whole life ought to be one perpetual course of obedience, they rebel without fear in almost all their actions and seek to appease him with a few paltry sacrifices while they ought to serve him with integrity of heart and holiness of life. You may be able to fool people with a few sacrifices to God, a few checks in the offering plate, a few times sitting on a seat in a church building, but the person you cannot fool with where your life is actually headed is God himself. And at some point in time when you stand before God, will he find you righteous, not based on your own righteousness, but on the righteousness of Jesus Christ? who loved you and gave his life for you. The last illustration he uses is the house. He says in verse 24, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. 
And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house. And yet it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house in the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell and great was its fall. His third illustration builds on this idea. He looked at the religious leaders and he said, you who think you're righteous, you're really not. The only one who is righteous has to have their life built on the rock. The rock is Jesus Jesus Christ. Now, I understand having... I've lived in Florida for um, two, almost three years. It was like my least favorite place ever. I don't understand why people would ever want to live there. Forgive me if you actually like Florida and want to live there. But... um, the, uh, so wh- coming from Florida, like after having to evacuate for like five hurricanes, um, I understand this thing about having a house built on sand after I was there for Katrina. I was there for, was it Rita? I don't know. There were like literally five hurricanes in like three years and we had to evacuate for almost all of them. And, and the one thing that happened in the Gulf Coast region after Katrina, especially because it wiped out so much, I drove through Gulfport, Mississippi, and there's literally houses all the way on the other side of the interstate that have been blown off the ocean. Um, it, it was a mess. Why? Because people built their houses right by the water, and then they wondered years, then all of a sudden, you know what happens after a hurricane and after some houses get destroyed, all of a sudden people realize, wait a minute, my insurance rates just like tripled. Well, because the insurance company understands that you built your house in a place that's going to get destroyed by water. You can't build it there. And what was interesting to me was there was one house that had amazing insurance rates, I'm sure. And that house was down, my wife worked, Beth worked in um, uh, Rosemary Beach, is a really fancy little community. She worked in a restaurant there. And uh, on the way down there, there was this house that the Hiltons built. Um, and this house, I looked, I looked it up because I just wanted to know what the stats were on it. This thing was, it was really weird looking. It looked like a flying saucer, all concrete, spirals, like it, it, and it was built to withstand a hurricane. So I looked it up to find out like how they built this thing. This thing was built on 40 foot deep concrete pilings. It had 12 inches of concrete slab for floors. That was why it would withstand 100, 200 mile an hour winds. Because that thing was built to hit rock bottom, even though it was built literally 100 yards from the water. Nothing was going to destroy that house. And I guarantee you that house will still be there as long as they keep it up. It'll be there for a very long time. Why did those other houses not stay in that same location? Because as soon as the winds came and the rain came, they're made out of wood. They're on a standard foundation that's made for building inland. And lo and behold, the houses are gone. That's what he's talking about here. And you know what? Some of those houses that were destroyed were absolutely beautiful houses. We're not talking shacks. People built multi-million dollar homes right next to the water because why? Because they could. These were millionaires who had lots and lots of money. And so they built these fantastically beautiful homes in places like Gulfport, in places like Panama City, in places like Destin. And so they built all these beautiful homes. And, and, and to be honest, they, they did build them firm for, for the area, but they didn't build them hurricane firm. And so when the biggest hurricane they'd ever had in that area comes along, those houses were gone because they didn't have a 40-foot-deep concrete piling as their foundation. 
And what this passage is saying is that you can have the most best-looking life. You can be saying the right things over and over. You can look the part. You can do the right things. But if your foundation is not right, if, those, if your foundation is not built on Jesus Christ, then when rough times come, when hard times come, where are you going to turn to? Your righteousness? How good you are? How great you are? Can you heal your own sickness? Can you give yourself your own hope for getting into heaven? Can you make anything like that happen? It's not enough to hear Jesus' call or to respond to it because it's what we were culturally raised in or it's easy or accepted and it makes us look good. That was what the Pharisees were doing. We must build our lives on a foundation of Jesus Christ and the only way that our good works are truly enduring. Remember, in all of this, Jesus has never said, don't do good works. He's always said, make sure that why you're doing those good works is because of your your life that's grounded on me. If they're done in and through our relationship with Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. James chapter 1, verse 22 through 25, back to James again. He says this, But prove yourselves doers of the word, not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. James there is saying that it's, if, if all we're going to do is hear the word of God, we're going to listen to it, we're going we're gonna to say the right things, we're going to come and we're going to hear it in a sermon or whatever, but then... We walk away from it, and it never changes our life. It never becomes a part of us. We never let the Holy Spirit work in us and produce the kind of fruit that it's supposed to, then then we're built on a really shallow foundation. That our life is not truly grounded on Jesus Christ because our faith in him, which we say is real, is not making any difference. We're not grounded in Jesus He also makes it very clear here that there will be hard times. There will be persecution. Remember I said at the very beginning, the easy way is legalism. It is so much easier to just make the Bible say whatever you want it to say and just go the way of culture. It just is. If you want to get along, just say whatever the other person wants to hear. It'll make your life a thousand times easier, I promise you. Okay? But if you truly want to follow the Bible, unfortunately, and you want to have your life planted and grounded in God and on Jesus Christ, unfortunately, you can't always do that. And we have to go where the scriptures lead us. And when we do that, it means that our life is probably going to have some trouble to it. Besides the fact that all of us are going to have trouble, like things like relatives dying, we go through hard times, we go through divorces, we go through um, children issues, we go through all these other things that happen to every single person. And when we come to those times, it's when our life is really tested to see where our foundation is at. If your foundation is on yourself and what you can do to earn your salvation... 
not a very strong foundation. Because that's not going to get you through when you're powerless. If you're trusting in your own works and what you can do to earn your salvation, then yeah, you can put on a suit and come to church and sit in the right place and say the right songs and say the right things. But, but you, you can't heal someone. You can't fix your, your per, the marriage. You can't fix your children because you, want, you don't control them. Only God, has, through his Holy Spirit, can work in another person's life and in your life. Only a deep, abiding faith in Jesus Christ will get us through those times. I love how D.A. Carson ends this. He wraps up all of the Sermon on the Mount with these words in his commentary. He says, The sermon ends with what has been implicit throughout it. The demand for radical submission to the exclusive lordship of Jesus, who fulfills the law and the prophets and warns the disobedient that the alternative to total obedience, true righteousness, and life in the kingdom is rebellion, self-centeredness, and eternal damnation. The only way we can find true peace and happiness in this world, that we can truly fulfill the law in the way it was intended, is not to try to keep it is not to try to be good enough. It's to place our whole life at the feet of Jesus Christ. To recognize that He is all we need. The only thing we can ever truly give us the satisfaction and the hope for no matter what we face in life or no matter what we face in death. It's Jesus Christ. And here's what concerns me. Is that there's people in our church, possibly in every church, that think they're right with God. Because they come to church, they sing songs, they pray the right words, they generally act in moral and decent ways, but their house they've built that looks wonderful, instead of being built on the rock of Christ, sacrificial atonement, as the only one who is truly good and moral, it's built on their own shaky ground of their works, which will never bring you truly into a right standing with God. And I think the message is for us to examine our life and ask yourself, what is your foundation? What are you truly building your life upon? And the only thing that will put you in right standing with God is a relationship with Jesus Christ, his son. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, as we have looked this morning and we've ended your words to us in the Sermon on the Mount. Lord, we truly know that you desire a relationship with us that's based on faith, that's based on grace, and not of anything that we can do. That, Lord, you will change our lives. You will give us fruit that will endure for you if we will just come to you in recognition that we can never save ourselves but that through you we can have a relationship with God that will ground us and put us deep enough in the earth that anything that comes against us, we can have the hope for a future and a hope for today. We give you the honor and the glory and the praise. In Christ's name, amen.